And it's time once again for the Jack Riccardi Show. And here is Jack Riccardi. And uh, good afternoon. So, Christian, we're trying to figure out, I think everybody right now is trying to figure out what exactly happened with this judge in Florida, right? Because, as I understand it, he said that the government could not justify sealing all of the documents. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't, is that how you understood it or how you read it? Yeah, you know, when you do what I do, it's not that I'm not human and it's not that I don't have opinions, because I do. When you, get right. into, when you get into the news, in right. something like this, you know it's moving so quickly. Yes. I just wait for the next thing to happen. This is a very interesting tennis match, but mm-hmm. let's see how this unfolds. It, it, it's getting spicier, as they say. I think that's good advice because I, I actually am starting to question what Trump and his legal team, and just to digress for a minute, his legal team tends to not be, shall we say, elite mm-hmm. um i don't think he gets the best advice he doesn't seem to have the best people but um they seem to think that the more of this that comes out the better it will be for their argument which which is that this is all politically motivated but somebody was telling me today and it was a good point this is somebody who's a lawyer that the the documents are advocacy documents in other words, the fbi made a case to that judge so those documents are not exculpatory for Trump. Those documents may be, if, if, there, if certain ones are released and certain other ones are not, it may make his position look worse, not better. You know what I mean? Because that, they were making an argument that they had to go in there. We need to see the affidavit. Is, I mean, yeah. you're just not going to get past that. And, and then once you do, then the very next step, and I, I'll just go out on a limb and predict this, then the next step, depending on how far uh, the, the anti-Trump side wants to take it, then the next argument is going to be about precedence. Because mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. other presidents who've taken document, then you have to compare all of those. Then you, you, some are going to talk about Hillary Clinton and the, the, the homebrewed server. Uh, yeah. It's going to go on for a while. Although I guess the answer to that would be, well, no, we don't have to go by precedent because he's different. I mean, that's that's. I'm I'm just right. making their argument. I'm saying what they say. Yep. He's like no one we've ever had before. This is a situation like we've never had before. So the old rules don't apply, and that's been the approach with him all along, really. Well, I tell you what, he he is unlike any other politician that I've ever known. Yeah. And I guess historically you could find some examples, but having grown up in Texas, yeah. I remember the the mudslinging politics uh, back in the 1980s, the the Ann Richards versus what was it, Clayton Williams, I believe. Mm. Um, things got pretty nasty on the political yeah. scale, but. Donald Trump is different in that you can't slander him. The more mud you throw at him, mm-hmm. he just becomes a bigger mud monster. So, Well, and he's, of course, his whole um, case is anytime they come after me, that's what's the old saying? You, when you're over the target, that's when you take flack, or you take flack when you're over the target. Mm-hmm. He wears accusations as proof that he's right, as proof that he's fighting the right people. And so most politicians don't want scandal, right? They don't want controversy. They don't want a cloud hanging over them. That's He's right. saying, bring on the cloud because the cloud just shows that I've touched a nerve. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's, it's hard. It's hard. For those of us sitting in the seats trying to figure this out, it is difficult. We're going to bring our constitutional law professor on here shortly, Bill Pyatt from St. Mary's University. So that's going on today, and it's, it's murky, and there's no clear resolution on it. The other thing that's... Um, 
it, it, kind of interesting that's playing out, I think, and I want to talk about this, and we'll open up the phone lines to 210-599-5555. So the FBI once had near-universal respect and admiration. It, it, little kids wanted to be FBI agents the way that little kids today might want to be firefighters or or football players. It was it was that widely admired. There was a television show on when I was a kid uh, called The FBI Story, I think, or The FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And I mean, we just we just really looked up to them. And what's happened, I think, is a series of scandals. Whether or not the Mar-a-Lago raid is one of them or not remains to be seen. But um, I think what's happened with the FBI is that. The, the left, everything they touch, they, they ruin. And they've taken something that was held in high regard, that was thought of by many people as the sort of, you know, institution of last resort. You could, if, if you couldn't, if you didn't know who to trust down below, you could go to the top and, and, and get the definitive word from the FBI. Every major uh, crime eventually uh, invited their involvement. Now, the public, and, and, and numerous surveys and polls reflect this, not just the people that listen to our show. The public is really not sure anymore uh, if the FBI is uh, a political police force uh, for the Biden administration. And so, as you know, former President Trump has said a lot of stuff about the FBI. His supporters are saying... Um, a lot. In fact, Jim Jordan, the uh, Ohio congressman on Fox over the weekend, said that 14 whistleblowers and counting have come forward to the House Judiciary Committee. So he claims, I don't know if it's true or not, that there are people in the FBI that want to tell the story of political orders or direction they're getting. So that's on one side of it, right? The FBI is corrupt. The FBI is... is uh, political this is a vendetta against trump and then mike pence comes out he gave a speech yesterday in new hampshire and mike pence is not a declared candidate for president but but i mean it, it, everything he's doing everywhere he's going hello new hampshire it, it looks like mike pence is going to run for president in his own right in in 2024 and he trump's former vice president is now his new theme on the stump is hey we have to stop lashing out at the FBI, because when people who are conservative or Republican attack the FBI, that's just as wrong as Democrats and leftists calling to defund the police. And now people are mad at Mike Pence. Like, what the hell's the matter with this guy? I I could say that he may be trying to make a fine point, right, which is that If Trump's theory and other people's thinking about the FBI is correct, the FBI is being used for political purposes. But that wouldn't make the the men and women who work at the FBI your, your enemy or even the problem. In other words, if they are law enforcement professionals or whatever their skill set is at the FBI, because it's obviously thousands of people that do other things besides field agent work, um, if you're working there and you're showing up every day and you work in good faith, you're not you're not culpable for that. And I I think maybe what Pence is trying to say is our beef isn't with the rank and file 
workforce, our beef is with the political direction, the, you know, deploying of. Is that, so I, I think that's what he's saying. My question is, is that really important? an important point for somebody like Mike Pence to be making right now? You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the never-Trumpers, not that Pence is a never-Trumper, but they get very fixated and they get very focused on making a particular point or, or driving home a particular point, something Trump does that they don't like or a, a habit he has or a manner of speaking or what. And you want to say to them, yeah, but you're missing the bigger battle. here. You're missing the bigger problem. So uh, should we be worrying about and should we be clarifying this talk about the FBI or is the real problem that a very powerful, very sophisticated law enforcement agency has been made available to, it seems, uh, political purposes and carrying out political missions. So Pence is saying, hey, you sound, you sound as crazy as when people say defund the police. Well, I don't think people see it the same way. The police officer on the beat who, if, the police are defunded, won't be on the beat anymore, won't be in your neighborhood, won't be visible in your community. We see him or her as, a, you know, a problem solver. I mean, it's just a, a practical thing. They, they help uh, keep us safe or, or make us feel safe. There's, there's all kinds of practical reasons why we want police officers in our community and we want uh, police departments to be adequate to the size of the city they patrol. But with the FBI, I, I think what people are saying is it's dangerous to have this tool that can be abused. Politicians will always be politicians. It's dangerous to have this tool within their reach. And it is. So how do you feel about this distinction that people like Pence are making? Hey, we shouldn't be attacking the FBI over the Trump search. We can hold, he says, we can hold the Attorney General accountable without attacking the rank and file personnel of the FBI. Is, is that an important distinction for you, or would you rather Pence just let that go? I mean, I don't know where he's going. I don't know what path he has to the presidency. I like him, but he doesn't see, he seems like yesterday's news. Like, if this was the 1988 election, uh, Pence would probably be a great candidate. It doesn't seem like he's the man for the moment. But tell me what you think. 210-599-5555. Is he, is he delusional? Is he right? Is Should we heed him? Is he missing the bigger picture? Another big story uh, this afternoon, and we'll go to your calls. They've announced the suspension for Deshaun Watson, the former Houston Texans quarterback who now is with the Cleveland Browns. This is a guy who has been serially accused of assaulting uh Women massage people, masseuses, is that what you call them? Yeah. So they had originally said he would get a six-game suspension uh, and pay a fine, and now he has received an 11-game uh, suspension. And um, people are reacting uh, to that. I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of the six versus the 11, except that if Deshaun Watson did the things these women accuse him of, um, suspending him for playing football is not even shouldn't even be on the radar. Um, I mean, if you and I did it, the authorities wouldn't say, "Oh, well, just don't go to work," <laughs> right? 
So I, I, I'm, I'm really I'm a I'm a football fan. I'm a sports fan. I'm trying to understand this. I know the NFL is very woke. This to me looks completely tone deaf and out of step. If he didn't do the things the women are accusing him of, then they should be defending him and they should be insisting that he be on the field, and uh, they should do that for any athlete. So it, either he did it or he didn't. If he if he did it, uh, not playing football is not a punishment I can take seriously. If he didn't do these things, then he is a wronged man, and. Um, it's a shame that no one, apparently no one seems to know other than him. He, he would know. The ladies would know. long time ago, I liked Mike Pence as a future presidential candidate. I really thought that he would be. Uh, this is when he was in Congress, and um, he was a really solid, uh, very admirable conservative member of the House at one time. Uh, he was what I would truly call, without irony, a Reagan conservative. He even has a little bit of the Reagan... I think, mannerism of speaking. And then he became the governor of Indiana. Um, He stepped away from the House. And then he was the surprise choice for Donald Trump as a running mate. And um, I think most people probably would have thought that Mike Pence would run for president based on that time as vice president, only because vice presidents usually run for president. But Mike Pence doesn't seem like the, the man for the moment right now. He doesn't seem like the, the one we're waiting for. And um, I get what I think he's saying about differentiating between professionals who work for the FBI and corruption wielding the FBI. But honest to God, um, this is like your house is on fire and you look over and Mike Pence is straightening out the throw rug <laughs> or fluffing the pillows. It's not important right now. And I'm sorry, but when you, when you tell people who are in your own camp, you sound like crazy leftists, that doesn't seem like the basis for a presidential campaign. I mean, I don't know how Pence has missed this because he's had a front row seat, but if there's one thing conservatives are tired of, it's, it, it's that they're tired of being told, the way they feel about things, the way they naturally, instinctively react to things, is the problem. We're not the problem. We're reacting to the problem. We're recognizing the problem. And if Mike Pence can't help, then we don't need him whining about cr- criticizing the FBI. And the FBI is not some fragile, it's not like you're it's not like you're defending an order of nuns or something. The FBI is a is a, a massive, mighty bureaucracy. And the fact that Donald Trump or a talk show host or somebody else uh, expresses doubts about them or or uh, or worse is not going to hurt them. And it's ludicrous to even be worrying about that. There are mountains of evidence that the FBI has been corrupted. Its leadership has been corrupted. Jim Comey was corrupt. Christopher Wray is corrupt. 
Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. I mean, the list could go on and on. The pushing of the Steele dossier when they knew it was incredible. Calling parents who went to school board meetings domestic terrorists. The Larry Nasser case. And I'm not even going into the, you know, all the other political stuff like Hillary Clinton's um, various illegalities. So I don't know, maybe Mike Pence is not running for president. Maybe Mike Pence is just on a conscience tour and he's just saying things that he, how he, saying how he feels and what he thinks. But if you're, if you're going to New Hampshire, um, People are going to think, you're kind of visiting one of the uh, first primary states. Looks like you're getting ready to... I, I, I really don't know. And look, I'm not trying to scare you, but what's happening right now with the FBI, the DOJ, the IRS is potentially terrifying. And what Republicans need to be doing is not wringing their hands and clutching their pearls about how people refer to them or talk about it. They need to be developing a plan, a governance plan, in the event that we put them back in charge. I think it's become pretty clear now that they weren't ready the last time we put them in charge. They, they didn't drain the swamp. They didn't have the people. They didn't make the right moves. They left incredibly dangerous people in place. And the Mar-a-Lago raid is just a symptom of that. You, you, you could have seen it coming. So instead of lecturing their own base about how to feel or how to talk about the FBI, I don't need any lecture. What are you guys going to do if we, and I'm not saying we will, but if we put you in charge? What's your plan? They don't need your defense. They don't even want it. <laughs> okay? And, and I'm not just talking about Trump. I don't know what Trump did. I don't know if he did anything. I'm not worried about him. I'm worried about you and 87,000 IRS agents. And the idea that you're a domestic terrorist because you're going to a place you have every right to be and speaking out about your children. I'm worried when people at the top of the top of the food chain, like the former, you remember the guy that was the, uh, the CIA director, Michael Hayden, he retweeted... And I'll, I'll get the full article here in a minute. But there was a, an article written by one of the editors of Financial Times. Nobody you would have ever heard of. And this guy was going on and on about how he's been all over the world and he's covered politics and, and revolutions. And, you know, he's, he's a big shot. He's, he's, a, he's a well-traveled journalist, a capital J. And he said, in so many words, I've seen it all and the uh, Republicans in America are the most dangerous Toxic people I've ever seen. That's what he said. Okay, fine. It's his opinion. Michael Hayden, the former CIA director, says, you're right, I agree. These people think we're the enemy of the country. They're not mad at us because we have different politics and we vote for a different candidate. They are systematically defining us as the enemy. You know what America does to its enemies, right? I mean, you're, you're aware of the capabilities, right? Well, you're being compared to ISIS and Al-Qaeda 
and other foreign adversaries, only you're being described as even worse, according to this Financial Times guy. So that's the thing to worry about. If you're going to worry at all, I'm not saying you have to, but if, if you wanted to be worried, Mike Pence, come on, man. <laughs> really? Oh, man, you want to feel old? No, Jack, I don't want to feel old. (laughs) Well, too bad. I'm going to make you feel old anyway. This weekend is 35 years since the release of the movie Dirty Dancing. Yeah. Did you see it when it came out? Big hit movie. Huge soundtrack, including... That song by one of the movie's stars, Patrick Swayze, the late Patrick Swayze. We'll hear some more of the dirty dancing music coming up as we go through the show here. And speaking of music, our vinyl records guy, Mighty John, coming up after 6 on KTSA. Jack here at 210-599-5555. Do you see the pattern that I see? So when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator in 2015, and I remember we were on the air and we were covering this, and and, and I remember saying to our producers, this is surreal. Donald Trump is going to run for president? But what what happened, I mean, this is a simple version of it, is a guy came along and figured out that people were not being listened to. The politicians were trying to tell people what their priorities should be instead of listening to what people's priorities were. And say what you want about the guy, and you can differ with him on his style or his technique or his tweets, But he, and I don't know if he was sincere or just savvy and calculating, but he, he tapped in, and he basically in so many words said, I hear you. They don't hear you, but I hear you. And he was elected the most improbable election of our lifetime. And everything that happened, we all know the the history. Now we have the elites in both parties heading into the midterms, again, trying to tell us what we should care about. Pronouns. Not crime or inflation or the border. We should care about a wealthy woman from Wyoming settling a score. And we should mourn the fact that her selfish impulses and her pompous dismissal of her own state's voters caused her to get bounced from Congress. We should be sad about that. We should give her prizes for her stunning bravery. And she's like Lincoln. Do you see the pattern? We're right back in the same boat that brought Trump to power the first time. And here you have, almost on cue, Mike Pence and people like him showing up saying, hey, don't say mean things about the FBI. That's really the problem right now. Now, if he is trying to say there's good people inside the FBI, Fine. I, I'll, as, as lawyers like to say, I'll stipulate to that. I, I, that's, I'm sure that's true. 
But if you're going to miss the bigger point, which is what Joe Biden and Merrick Garland are doing with the FBI, and what Jim Comey did with it while Trump was president. I mean, by his own admission, this isn't some conspiracy theory. Jim Comey is proud of the fact, and has dined out for years on the fact, that in his first meeting with Donald Trump, he was setting him up. That is a way bigger problem than mean language. 210-599-5555. I was thinking about the, we had a lot of fun yesterday with the Abraham Lincoln stuff. Um, Abraham Lincoln, invoked by Liz Cheney in her concession speech that wasn't a concession speech, Abraham Lincoln first ran for office for his state legislature when he was 23 years old, and he lost. And it was actually the only direct election he ever lost. He was elected to Congress in 1846 and didn't run for a second term. He served one term. He ran for the... um, Senate from Illinois twice, but those were not popular elections. In those days, we elected senators in the state legislature. So he wasn't, he wasn't going before the voters. He was going before the legislature. Needless to say, he was an outsider and he didn't prevail. Um, the, the, the weirdest part about her invoking Lincoln is the humility of Lincoln. Of all people for her to compare herself to, Abraham Lincoln never forgot that he was no better than, and and by his own description, often much worse than, the people whose vote he was humbly asking for. He didn't claim to be or act like he was entitled to office. He did not categorize his defeats as if the people had missed a golden opportunity. Is it possible that what made Lincoln a great leader and an esteemed leader in our history are qualities that you just almost never find in people today who seek office? It is not a flaw if the people reject you, if the voters reject you. That is not a flaw in the people. And moreover, you getting into office and staying into office, uh, staying in office, is not public service. It's me service. That's self-service. I mean, you don't see them getting into the House, getting into the Senate, and then going on food stamps, or, or losing weight, or, 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 or having to, you know, sell off their possessions. They all get rich. Some richer than others, but none of them are starving. None of them are hurting. None of them are going into public housing when they leave Congress. So it isn't just that Liz Cheney is ridiculous. It's that any of these people comparing themselves to Abraham Lincoln is ridiculous. 
and um, and it's it just it kind of the fact that that she is not completely called out for that across the board. I mean, that is so clearly not an apt comparison. Tells you, among other things, that we don't even know our own history anymore. So she apparently knows just enough of it to refer to him, but clearly not enough of it to know how ironic and inappropriate the comparison is. It's pretty bad. Uh, 210-599-5555. All right, so I want to get your reaction to um, Trump trying to get the affidavit unsealed and um, this business about defending the FBI, criticizing the FBI, uh, calling for the uh, dismantling of the FBI. And and do you have a position on that, or do you think that is a discussion at least that we need to have? Maybe you haven't made up your mind, but is it worrisome to you when the operation of your own government is declared off-limits for conversation? Like, we shouldn't we shouldn't be talking disparagingly about our government. What? Where are we? <laughs> what, what are we, in North Korea? I thought, I thought debating and contemplating the rearrangement of our government was one of our uniquely American things, one of our most quintessential American things. Maybe not unique, but I mean, this is kind of what we're known for. Oh, no, you shouldn't talk that way. Wow. I mean, I haven't been alive that long, but I've been alive long enough, I guess, to see that. Just got like three emails in a row, bing, 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 uh, all about the same. Uh, we don't need Pence. Pence should hang it up. Pence is old. Pence is yesterday's news. We need Trump. Okay. Now, I, I don't want to make you mad, but you're going to start to have a problem with me, I think, because we need Trump is not enough of an answer here. Okay. I voted for him. I get it. I I get that he personifies, and thank God that he did personify the uh, dissent and the dissatisfaction of millions of us. But if you think that this is simply about whether or not he becomes president in 2024, I, I assure you it's it's about way more than that. And if you go back to the January 6th riot, which was pathetic and disgraceful, um, and we I, I've, I've already shared what I think happened and why I think it happened, and I think a lot of it was ignorance, but the um, the riot basically was used or seized upon by um, the political establishment, not only Democrats, but obviously the Republican establishment as well, to tell everybody to take a step back, calm down, dial it back. You don't need to be showing up where your overlords work, (laughs) right? Stay away from our building. The same people that for years stood back and let you be menaced by rioters, looters, arsonists, finally found some law enforcement 
they believed in on January 6, 2021. And this FBI debate is kind of the same thing. I don't need a lecture from people who let our cities burn in 2020 about how you properly show respect for the law or for law enforcement. And I see what you're doing with the January 6th event. It's why some people, I'm not one of them, believe that it was it was staged or created. I, I, I can see why people would think that, because it's been so incredibly useful to them that if it, if it hadn't happened, you'd almost think they'd want to make it happen. And the crackdown and everything that's followed, the investigation, the demonization, um, they're all symptoms. And what's being done with Trump is a symptom. And Donald Trump isn't going to live forever. But you're going to have to live with people who have decided you're the problem, you're the enemy, what you believe and how you believe and how you educate your children and how you live is is terrorism, is dangerous. It's not just something they disagree with. Oh, that's not how I would have handled it. It's much more than that. I mean, whatever you think of them, these are some pretty serious people saying, you know, um, Republicans are worse than ISIS. I mean, if a political operative said that, if some goon like Jim Carville is saying that, I'm thinking he's just, you know, that's that's clickbait, that's trying to stay relevant, get on get on the news. But these are people that are consulted. These are people that are they have the ears of the most powerful people in the world. You heard about why the Inflation Reduction Act passed, right? You've heard this story. For all the blather about Biden and he had a great week and he looks cool in his aviator glasses. What basically happened was Bill Gates called Joe Manchin. And we don't know what was said or what transpired, but the probably the most powerful person in this country outside of politics called the one senator who had been intransigent. And it wasn't Joe Biden that twisted his arm or Chuck Schumer that twisted his arm was Bill Gates. That right there tells you a lot about how politics works. Who calls the shots? Who pulls the strings? Bill Gates made a phone call, and we got the $750 billion so-called Inflation Reduction Act, of which about half, more than half, is just the Green New Deal under a new name, under a different name. So think about your life. Stop thinking about Trump's life. Think about how you're going to make it over the next four years. Not what's, what's he going to be doing or where, where will he be. or Everything you do, every good you buy, every service you buy or pay for, is falling under the control of people or companies that are run by or partially controlled by people who hate you, think you are dangerous, and are trying to find favor with others who feel the same way. And they're being told by serious people, capital S, capital P, like Michael Hayden, that they're right. You know, um... 
I remember there was a story after Trump left office about how the left was making lists of people that had served in the Trump administration, basically making like a like a directory, so that those people who worked for him and you know not not well known people, not like Mike Pompeo, but I mean like junior level people would be in this directory, and if they applied for a job somewhere, if they went to higher education or corporate America or wherever, people who were in the know, wink, wink, could look at the directory and go, oh, I'm not going to even interview her. She was, uh, you know, she worked in the Trump White House or she worked in the State Department or, you know, whatever it was. So we're, we're much further along than we thought we would be at this point. These are things we used to worry about that have now happened. They would love for you to obsess about Trump and the affidavit and what, whether he's going to run for president. That's a great distraction for them. But I, I would just say, and I'm, I'm not telling you what to think. I guess I am a little bit. Worry about you. <laughs> I don't worry about me uh, and where this is all going. And we bring on now our uh, good friend of the show, former Bear County District Attorney and retired Judge Steve Hilbig on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Judge, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jack. So you've, you've been through a lot more of these um, proceedings than, than we have. Uh, are you struck by anything unusual in the uh, heavily redacted, partial release of documents today? Did this, did this judge punt or split the baby, or, or what happened here? No, I mean, again, I was a federal prosecutor and also did uh, defense work over on the federal side. It is highly, highly unusual to release any portion of a search warrant affidavit uh, until after uh, formal charges are brought. In other words, an indictment is brought or, or complaints filed, and, and uh, that's usually when any part of the search warrant affidavit gets released. So this is highly unusual. It's going to be interesting to see how much the government is going to want to redact. Uh, I think it's a signal that maybe the judge didn't believe the uh, government when it said, oh, my gosh, if if you release the affidavit, uh, that that's going to give away then uh, our our method of investigation, our people who helped us in the investigation. Uh, And then, for instance, like in a a drug case, you know, usually you'll have information in there that may uh, lead uh, the defendants to be able to figure out, say, who provided some confidential information, even though they're not listed, uh, obviously, in the affidavit by name. But uh, so the government, excuse me, that judges are always reluctant if they truly believe that release of that affidavit is going to cause problems, meaning put somebody in physical danger or prevent the government from continuing to use methods that it gained uh, that it used to gain the information they're using in the affidavit, that it won't mm-hmm. be able to let them continue to use that in their investigation. Yeah, they're, they're going to say, sorry, we're not going to release it. So it, it is pretty interesting. I was struck by a couple of phrases. Um, the phrase about uh, concerned about endangering witnesses and concerned about uh, the possible destruction of evidence. And here's what I'm confused about. We, we've heard that Attorney General Garland sat on the request for weeks. We're, we're, we heard that they suspected for weeks, months, that there were sensitive documents in Trump's 
room there at Mar-a-Lago. We they even they were leaking about it, right? They were saying it might be nuclear documents. So on the one hand, you're saying um, w- th- there's stuff so sensitive it could give aid and comfort to the enemy, but then on the other hand, you're waiting and waiting and waiting to go get it. I I, I guess I just I those don't go together for me. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. Well, the waiting, uh, I have maybe a little bit different interpretation. So, for instance, and again, as I talked about earlier, sometimes when you do things like this, you need the permission of the attorney general themselves. So you send information up saying, okay, here's our proposed warrant, and they may review it uh, up in the, uh, in the Department of Justice, or people under uh, the AG, and say, well, no, we don't think you have enough. You need to, you need to rephrase some of this, or you need to, to go ahead and get some further information to bolster this part of the probable cause affidavit. So, it, you know, I suspect, my suspicion is that it was not that he sat on it for, you know, it was all tied up in a bow for him, and, and he read it and sat on it for two weeks making the decision. I suspect that what happened is that there was some back and forth saying, no, it's not good enough. We're not comfortable signing off. We don't think there's enough probable cause. Go get us some more. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a case of we will eventually see all this and know all this someday, or is it is it just a question of we're not going to see it now, but but sooner or later it has to come out? Uh, maybe in this particular instance, yes. But again, like going back to, say, a drug case. So you run a search warrant on somebody, if no formal charges are ever brought, I'm not sure that that search warrant ever gets out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but here, I think because of the public interest in what's going on, if formal charges are never brought, then probably it will come out because someone will sue to go ahead and, and order its disclosure. And And again, so if there is no ongoing investigation and if there is no danger to anybody uh, being physically harmed as a result of the information being released, then, then they may do that. But uh, the government's got five years uh, statute of limitations on federal crimes, and so they can continue to say, well, we're going to investigate this, we're investigating this, we're invest-, and that, that can go on for five years. So it may be that uh, we don't see it anytime soon and, and down in the future, People just forget about it and move on. I had mentioned earlier in the show too. I kind of wonder if the Trump people, and I, I know you won't. You're very, you're very respectful of your fellow uh, men and women of the legal profession, but I, I, I think he has terrible advice. I think he has terrible people advising him. Um, I, I'm not so sure that they should be so sure that the more that comes out, the better it will be for him. Because if if I'm understanding this process, and correct me if I've got this wrong. These documents they keep demanding the release of are what are known as advocacy documents, right? This is this is the Department of Justice trying to justify uh, going into Mar-a-Lago. Why do Trump's people assume and tell him the more they can be released, the better our case will look? Well, I agree with you, and I would use a little bit different term uh, regarding the documents. They're one-sided. You know, they're not going to present a side. It's you know, so you only hear one side of the argument. So if these documents get released, you only get one one version, and it's only the government's version, and it's the government's version that they could put forward in the best light. And there is no, uh, I guess, uh, rebuttal to that except if you want to go out in public. 
So, yeah, that is a problem. I mean, and think about this. So uh, they redact anything that could possibly be uh, interpreted as in favor of uh, the former president's position. And and so when it comes out with the redactions, it's even more one-sided. So I agree with you that that it may not be the best thing to happen. And, of course, since they haven't seen the affidavit, it's really hard for mm. somebody to you know give them good advice about that. Yeah. Judge, I always appreciate the uh, time you share with us, and thank you for it today. Well, Jack, thank you very much. I always enjoy being on. Oh, man, that is that is one of my favorite songs of the 80s right there. I love it. Eric Carmen, Hungry Eyes. Eric Carmen was in the Raspberries, and that soundtrack was a nice comeback for him in the 80s, uh, the soundtrack for Dirty Dancing, the movie that came out 35 years ago this weekend. We'll hear more of that soundtrack music coming up here on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jack here in the late afternoon. Sam Harris is uh, a guy a lot of people follow uh, on social media and his podcast. He's a scientist and an author, and um, I don't I don't agree with him on very much. I will say he has a pretty good way of disagreeing respectfully with people or appreciating people that disagree with him. He's certainly a guy that believes that people other than his point of view or people holding points of view other than his should also be heard. But he said something uh, jaw-dropping recently. I want to play this for you because I think this reflects the thinking of a lot of people. And maybe when we talk about having family and friends who um, you know, won't talk to us anymore, won't have Thanksgiving dinner with us anymore, or what have you, um, and there's this sort of derangement about Trump, I think this might shed a little light on on their thinking. And I believe he's being serious and literal here. He's being interviewed by these two guys, uh, and he's talking about um, Trump and the Hunter Biden story. And, and just take a listen to this. Hunter Biden, at that point, Hunter Biden literally could have had, had the corpses of children in his basement. I would not have cared, right? It's like it's, there's nothing... First of all, it's Hunter Biden, right? It's not. It's like it's not Joe Biden. But even if Joe, like even the, whatever scope of Joe Biden's corruption is, like if you if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and and understand that he's getting kickbacks from Hunter Biden's deals in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China, it is infinitesimal compared to the corruption we know Trump. Is involved in it's like it's like it's like a firefly to the sun, right? I mean, like there's just it doesn't even it doesn't even stack up against Trump University, right? Trump University as a story is worse than anything that could be in in Hunter Biden's laptop, in my view, right? Now that's not that doesn't answer the people who say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the you know the New York Post's. Twitter account like that. That's a, just a conspiracy. That's a left wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. 
Absolutely it was. Absolutely. Right. But I think it was warranted. Right. Okay, and I'm, stop and the again, tape. stop the tape. Stop. Okay. That was a conspiracy to deny the presidency to Trump, but I think it was warranted. So Trump is like a permission slip to throw the rules away. And I think this is why they like to use the Nazi language and the Hitler language, and we're in the 1930s, because historians have often said, if only the German people had not been so compliant and law-abiding and respectful of authority. In other words, um, when you're facing a monster, you can't have rule of law. You can't have procedure or debate or free speech you can't trust voters in a in a representative democracy so sam harris who's not a dummy is saying the quiet part out loud he's saying of course we did things that you really can't defend but we did them because you had to stop trump now i i realize you may disagree with him about that you probably do but you need to know that that is the permission slip they've written themselves. And I think he speaks for people in the media. I think he speaks for people in law enforcement. I think he speaks for people in politics and government. Let's listen, listen to a little more of this. But I think it was warranted, right? And I'm, and again, it's a coin toss as to whether or not Sam, I'm sorry. that particular piece I'm, I'm really yeah. sorry. I, I was the one that said we should move yeah. on, but you've just oh, yeah. said something I really struggle with there, which is the you kid, support... The, kid, the, kid, the kids in the basement? No. I'm interested yeah. in democracy. You're saying you are content with a left-wing conspiracy to prevent somebody being democratically re-elected as president. Well, no, I, I'm content. Well, so it's, but the thing is, it's just not left-wing, right? So Liz Cheney is not left-wing. Right. Liz Cheney is doing everything in her power. to prevent somebody no, being democratic. It, like no, but there's nothing. Conspiracy. It's not. It, it was a conspiracy out in the open. It does, but it doesn't matter if it was. A, it doesn't matter what parts conspiracy, what parts out in the open. I mean, I think it's like if people get together and talk and talk about what should we do with, about this phenomenon. You know, if, if it's like if there, if there was an asteroid hurtling toward Earth, and and we got in a room together with all of our friends and had a conversation about what we could do to deflect its course, right? Mm. Is that a conspiracy? Mm. So you see what we've done here? First it was Trump means we, we can't abide by the normal rules. Then it became, well, what if an asteroid was coming? So I think what I take away from this is, and this is why I was saying last hour, don't worry about Trump, worry about yourself, worry about the country. I think the thinking is we now have a class of people at fairly high levels in our government and in our society who have decided that they are the, the guardians, they are the keepers, and they're going to do whatever needs to be done. You know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And I, I'm sure that sounds heroic and brave to them. and Maybe it does to people who also hate Trump or or hate you, but it's also a very dangerous delusion. In other words, imagine how you would feel if I got on the radio today and I said, um, I know better than all of you. I understand what's going on better than all of you. I'm going to be doing things you will not like or agree with, but I, 
you're going to have to let me do them. They throw a net over me. <laughs> I mean, you might you might listen for a while just to see how it all ends or how long it takes them to get the guys in the white suits over here. But, you know, it, th- that's what's happening here. I can respect people that disagree with me, and in the past, Sam Harris has respected people who disagree uh, with him. But what he has just said in a intellectual kind of way um, is what they sometimes call consequentialism, right? You know, the end justifies the means. If the end is big enough, important enough, then it justifies any means. You can't have law. You can't have uh, a republic. You can't have due process. You can't, you can't have elections, right? I mean, Trump won't be the last person that people like Sam Harris think are like an asteroid hurtling toward us. It's not like they'll never do this again unless you believed the people who told you that the COVID election would be a one-time thing. It's not like they'll never tell themselves or tell us again, oh, we can't let that person be president, even if you voted for him, even if he won the popular vote, even if he won the electoral college vote, even if the votes were certified. We can't let it. We can't let it be. So I wanted to play that for you because I think it's it's fun when people, uh, with the mask slips or they just decide to take it off. 210-599-5555. I'm still enjoying, by the way, how the left has suddenly become the biggest fans of the FBI. I mean, for most of my life, they feared and loathed the FBI. And I, I did not think I would live long enough to see the day when they would be wearing I Heart FBI uh, bumper stickers, but we've, we've come to that. The FBI. A QM production. <laughs> Starring Ephraim Zimblis Jr. Oh, man. You have no idea. When I was a kid, what a big deal that was in my house. The FBI, Ephraim Zimbalis Jr. Fooling around in those... What were they? I think they were Mercury Grand Marquis. I don't know. I mean, you, the, you had like Ephraim Zimbalis Jr. And, and of course, Jack Lord on Hawaii Five-0, Steve McGarrett. Those were the twin pillars of everything that was good and decent in my world as a kid. Um, so... We've come a long way, haven't we? Uh, 210-599-5555. Do you have dinner figured out for tonight? Um, are you going to have crickets? Are you having them uh, grilled, fried, broiled, cricket salad, doing them on the grill? Um, I, 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 we're getting a lot of reaction to the uh, Jack Riccardi Just a Minute uh, video today about uh, the cricket farming. Um, because I'm hearing all these and reading all these articles about uh, pretty, pretty big... Um, I mean, it's a big operation. It's a big deal. It's become a big industry. I was reading about a farm in Canada that harvests 50 million crickets a week and how many pounds of cricket protein that translates to. And it's it, they're growing this thing as fast as they can. And they make it into cricket flour. And they make it into various other forms. goes into people food, pet food. Um, and I'm just, this is not the future I had expected when I was growing up. I, when I was looking forward to the 21st century, I thought we'd have like flying cars. I didn't think we'd be eating crickets. 
the bigger story here is that we keep getting hit with, um, basically, we keep getting hit with replacement ideas that are pretty crappy replacement ideas. Like, crickets are not a good substitute for beef in my cookbook, okay? Sorry, th- that doesn't work for me. Um, and I don't want to drive an electric car right now. I want to I drive a gasoline-powered car. And I don't want these stupid light bulbs that are all squiggly and give off five watts of gray light. I want the light bulbs we used to have that you could read by and see things. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but the pattern here is that the globalists and the do-gooders keep announcing stuff that's going to be great, but then they try to cancel and ban the thing they're trying to replace. And that's a new wrinkle. It's one thing if you have a better mousetrap, if you have a better product, if you want to say to people, hey, look what we're doing over here, you should try this. That requires persuasion, right? I'm going to try to persuade you that you're going to like crickets. And persuasion requires three things. You have to empathize with your target audience. You have to have facts that are hard and real. And you have to come at people with some humility. I know you like beef, but just try this. But they're not doing that. They're saying, we're going to pry that gasoline-powered car out of your hands, and you will drive an electric car. We're going to put you on wind and solar, and if it's not enough, then there's brownouts, screw you. And now cricket farms. And if this was just an idea for the future, they wouldn't already have invested millions of dollars in it and be building you know, commercial facilities that are harvesting millions of crickets a week. And by the way, I thought we were supposed to keep bugs alive. Remember when we were having that angst over the bees? I mean, can these people make up their mind? Are we, are we supposed to kill them or eat them or not kill them or preserve them? or what? What's the deal? In some places, you can't build a highway if there's a beetle. But there's a farm in Canada that's harvesting 50 million crickets a week. And I don't know about you, but when I see a cricket in my backyard, the last thing I am thinking of, is I wonder what would taste good on that. You know? So it's like we've given up on persuasion, and we've moved right to just giving out orders. What do you think? I mean, I, I, and I'm not asking you, you know, what do you think about crickets? Uh, th- this is the pattern, though, right? You need to stop doing things the way you're doing them. You need to stop living the way you're living. You're, you're eating the wrong things. You're drinking the wrong things. You're wearing the wrong things. You're using the wrong power. You're driving the wrong thing. It's always you're wrong. We're right. There's no attempt to sell you or, you know, make the case that, hey, listen, if you just try this, it's really better. You know, we're not doing that anymore. It would be like if... It would be like if, exactly, it'd be like if uh, when Edison invented the light bulb, that was Edison, right? Yeah. Let's say Edison, when he invents the light bulb, then goes on a global crusade to ban candles <laughs> or, or, or lanterns. He didn't, right? 
he, he just built something that he thought would be better for people, and in fact, he was sure of it, and it was. Now, I'm not against change, but it's not being presented to us with any kind of persuasion or empathy. It's just We're just being ordered. 210-599-5555. Do you know what um, Substack is? Uh, I follow some people on Substack, and um, they're they're kind of thought pieces. They're kind of like columns. They're, it's like if a column met a blog, that's Substack. And there's this girl that I follow, um, and she wrote a an essay entitled "I Regret Being a Slut." And um, how do you not read that? You know, it's a headline grabber. And uh, she says, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to boil this down and paraphrase it. She talks about how um, she had sex with a lot of men starting at a young age. And she did it because that was being liberated. That was being bold. She did it because... Everything that was presented to her suggested that it was within her power to to do this and to defy societal norms that said she she shouldn't. She admits that um, it was a very unhappy, there were a lot of very unhappy times for her where she was rejected by a man, ghosted by a man, badly treated. She developed feelings, and the other the guy didn't return them. She regretted, she says, most of her sexual encounters. This, by the way, is somebody that wrote a sex column for Playboy at one time. So she's not a prude or a person that's led a sheltered life. She says, I, reject, I, I, I regretted most of my sexual encounters. But she said, when I was growing up, I was ashamed of my sexual urges, and then I, I got the message that I could indulge them, and that was my power. And so I did. She talks about losing her virginity at 17 to her boss at the restaurant where she worked. She says, I told myself that because I could seduce a man, I was powerful. But deep down inside... I knew I was lying to myself. And so what she's saying is, uh, feminism or liberation lied to me that the, the product of the message was a lie. She says, I'm not calling for a return to some Victorian-era notion of sex or some 1950s-era ideal about gender roles. I'm 43 years old now, and I'm, I'm in the first truly healthy, intimate relationship in my life. She's married, loves her husband. They recently had a daughter. But she's thinking about what she wants to teach her little girl as her little girl grows up. And she says, sex can be empowering when you're coming from a position of healthy self-esteem, If you're coming from a place of trauma or insecurity, casual sex won't heal that. In fact, it might set you back and undermine any progress regarding your feelings of self-worth. 
She says sexual empowerment has nothing to do with how many people you do or don't sleep with. And I, the reason I bring this up, I thought this was very interesting. The reason I bring this up is because this is another one of this is another example of that thing we've talked about before, where we know the best advice or the best answers or what people call in the business world the best practices. We know, empirically we know, that children need parenting and supervision and discipline. You need to know where your kids are. They need a curfew. They need to stay in school and finish school. You need to be in a, in a committed marriage before you have children. You need to bring children into the world that way. Yes, there are single parents that do a, a yeoman's job, but that's often the case because something didn't work out or the best laid plans, right? We pretend we don't know these things. If you, if you use uh, drugs, you are much more likely to have uh, illnesses, shorter life. I mean, we pretend we don't know, and we are told you shouldn't say these things. This is the Amy Wax thing we've talked about, right? And here's a, a young woman, relatively young woman, saying, I now know. Why are we telling girls differently? And it's, it's, very, it's very provocative. It's very interesting. I've thought about, and I think I will, I think I'm going to link to it, the only thing with uh, Substack is sometimes I could link to it. You may or may not be able to read it because it may be behind a paywall, but see if I can link to it in a way that you can read it. Are you a fan of the mullet? <laughs> I'll, I'll explain. I did not know there was such a thing until I saw it on Fox. There is a Best Mullet in America contest. Uh, they're down to the finalist stage. They've got 25 finalists of all ages, children, adults. Best mullet in America. The uh, first prize is $2,500. Seems like if you've grown out a mullet, you ought to get more than $2,500. Uh, There's a little kid from uh, Wisconsin um, who says that um, he decided to get a mullet when his uncle uh, promised him a Camaro if he would wear a mullet until he's 16 years old. I think he's 12 now. <laughs> we, we need to find the uncle and beat the crap out of him. What a, what a <laughs> maniac. What a, that is a terrible person. That is a horrible human being. Look, either buy your, either buy your nephew a Camaro or don't, but really why you're why making him wear a mullet link up together. I, well, well, I mean, it's a cliche, right? Camaro mullet. Yes. But, I mean, honest to God, the kid's on national television with his mullet. i got to be honest, and I hope I don't offend anyone, but I, I don't like the mullet. If you have a mullet, I probably would like you. I'm not so shallow that I can't see past your ridiculous haircut, but, I mean, come on. The mullet is the worst haircut. It's not even a haircut. It's, it's half a haircut. That's my problem with the mullet. It looks like you got up from the barber chair before they were done. 
you know, they started in the front, they were working their way along, they got to the ears, and then, I don't know, you heard your car alarm go off, or it was time for dinner, or what? I mean, people with mullets look like they left in the middle of the haircut. And this poor kid, imagine he goes to school every day, you, you don't need me to tell you, but he's holding out for that Camaro when he's 16. I don't even know if they'll still be making a Camaro when he's 16. Then they interviewed another kid. He's from Minnesota. He says that um, his mullet is the result of uh, being in a family of people with mullets. The several of the men and women in his family have mullets. And he already won a statewide contest in Minnesota. Now he's trying to win the national mullet competition. So the, the grand prize is only $2,500. And you have to pay to enter. And I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a free country. But how do you feel about the mullet? 210-599-5555. I, um, I mean, I've seen mullets that were, you know, better than others. But I just, I'm not a fan of it. But again, it's not, that, that just means I'll never have one. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You know, it's your hair. I will point out, I think I'm right about this that you would never see it a mullet to pay when people have to have fake hair it's never that hairstyle so that should tell you something but my advice is if you've got a mullet finish the haircut you know what i mean just go back and say i want the re- to do the rest i like long hair by the way i do i i, I think i think it depends it, you know some people look better with it than others but when you have that look or when you wear it well, I mean it's a great look. I'm not I'm not against long hair, but but don't don't confine it to just, you know, the back porch. You know what I'm saying? Go long all the way around. What do you think? We got stacks and stacks of wax and wax. We got the pick the click the ones who watch the oldies but goodies and oldies but gooies. We got the top seven hundred records. Next week it'll be a golden oldie. Let's hear it. Oh, yeah. It's Jack Cuburn Riccardi, and uh, we are welcoming back to the show our good friend, Mighty John Marshall, up in the great state of Maine. He's joining us on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Uh, John, good evening to you. Good evening, Jack. Great to be back with you. Um, for folks that have not heard you before, you are a... Um, a veteran of music radio and a big-time yeah. record collector, and you've parlayed that into being kind of the, the, the guru or the best friend of people that either collect vinyl or have vinyl and want to find out if it is collectible, right? been doing it for a long time, and it amazes me yeah. still to this day how few people actually have any idea how right. much potential value they have in their vinyl. So hopefully we right. can educate them. Yeah, we're going to take some calls from Mighty John. If you have your uh, vinyl in hand, and that's why we have him on later in the show, because we're hoping people are able to call at home and or from home, and they can you know, actually be looking at the, the label or be looking at the album cover, 210-599-5555. He also has a website, moneymusic.com, where you can uh, read some cool anecdotes about uh, collectible records. There's a record of the day feature. There's an online, and I think this is sort of new for you, right? There's an online 
uh, appraisal feature now on the website, right? Yeah, you can have your records appraised online. And since we were on with you last, we now have a YouTube channel, and you can see our records and what they're worth. Just go to my cool. website, moneymusic.com, and the links are right there to our YouTube channel. All right. We're going to count down some what you call sizzling summer vinyl. And, in fact, we just heard uh, Blues Image and Ride Captain Ride, and that's from a 1968 Blues Image album. Right. Uh, every month we put out a list of records worth $100 or more. So for August, we have Blues Image. Their album is called Open. It contains their hit, Ride Captain Ride, and it is worth up to $100. The album is worth $100. They, they were pretty yeah. much a one-hit wonder, right? They were. Uh, members uh, broke up after that and went to, uh, some went to Three Dog Night, some went to, uh, I believe, the Marshall Tucker Band. So they weren't around as Blues Image for a long time. Right. At number nine, we've got an album from the band Kansas. Kansas, big album, big hit for them, Point of No Return. In this album, if you have the picture disc version, where there's a picture right on the vinyl, not on the cover, but on the vinyl, Point of No Return, Kansas, up to $100. Wow. So some of them came that way and some of them came as just plain Jane? Regular black vinyl, yeah. Okay. Number eight, we got the Beach Boys, and this is a 45 of a song called Ten Little Indians. Yeah, and, you know, today you, you, you probably wouldn't be politically correct to play this on the radio, <laughs> but uh, they weren't woke back in 62. And so Beach Boys, Ten Little Indians with Picture Sleep, currently up to $150. All right. And we mentioned Picture Sleeve, again, for folks that have heard Mighty John before, you'll, you'll get this, but with uh, 45s, the picture sleeve is the, is, the, is the valuable piece. Right. In this case of the Beach Boys, uh, the record itself worth up to $50. The picture sleeve by itself worth up to $100. All right. And the picture sleeves, of course, are the less likely of the two to survive the years. They were flimsy. They broke Absolutely. down. If you, I know you, you and I probably had the same experience. If you were a disc jockey and you handle these records a lot, they just disintegrated. Absolutely. Or you attacked them on the wall, and after a while, your mother threw them out. So they, they didn't survive as well as the records. All right. Taking some calls from Mighty John, too, at 210-599-5555. Number seven in our countdown is a Clint Eastwood 45. Can you believe it? Clint Eastwood. Yes, you know, at the time, he was Rowdy Yates on the TV show Rawhide, and the big teen uh, idol to the girls. And so the record company thought, gee, maybe we should make a record with this guy. And they did. It's called Unknown Girl, Clint Eastwood, with its picture sleeve, up to $175. Uh, how did that do on the, on the, uh, on the charts? Didn't make the charts, but it's did... still in our hearts, as we like to say. <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing, though, right? I mean, when you look back at the, particularly the 50s and 60s, the studio system... Right took every one of these guys that, you know, Tab Hunter, anybody that was big in movies or television, right. if you had a young demographic, they were going to put out a record. All the members of Bonanza, all the stars on Bonanza, all yeah. had records as well. So it was a big thing to do and made them a collectible today. Number six is Steve Miller Band, but early Steve Miller Band. 1968. I think this is their first album, Children of the Future. Steve Miller Band on Capitol Records, currently up to $200. What makes that one collectible? Because it was early, or yeah, and it was a uh, it was one of the uh, first real albums that was specifically made for FM. 
Uh, by the late 60s, FM was coming into its own, and this is a big album that was played on FM, mm-hmm. and it kind of has a little uh, legend behind it because of that, and it's uh, $200 right now. Yeah, that was interesting how um, you know FM, music, FM radio had been for classical music or things like that, and when it became this home for you know what was then considered alternative rock or album-oriented right. rock, that and the yep. album, they kind of fed off of each other, right? They did. It did. And, uh, of course, it was very rare to have uh, Top 40 music on FM back at that time. All right, let's grab a call for Mighty John, and I'm going to have you do it, uh, Don. You're going to run the, the phone bank here, so let's talk to Mike on line one on KTSA with a question for Mighty John. Mike, good afternoon. Hello. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you for taking my call, and I had some questions for Mighty John. I have some old, old, old 1940s, a uh, little bit of heaven uh, on Decca Records. It's about the three or four different records in there. But I mainly called about uh, three different records. They were uh, the three caballeros. And uh, there's there's one by Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers, Pecos Bill. And there was, uh, these are maybe three or four records each, Bugs Bunny and the Tortoise. The race. <laughs> yeah, that's Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc can be collectible because he's the voice of Bugs Bunny. Um, overall, uh, the Cowboy Stars are not too collectible except for Gene Autry. Gene Autry can be extremely collectible on, on any other label other than Columbia Records where he had all his hits. His first album, his first record, Thinking of You Little Gal, uh, can sell up to about $5,000. But Roy Rogers and Pecos Bill... Not quite as collectible. Their records generally go in the $25 to $30 price range. All right. Mike, thanks for that question. Appreciate it. 210-599-5555. George is on KTSA as we talk to our records guy, Mighty John. Hi, George. Hey, what's going on? Thanks for, what's up? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, actually, I, I, had a, I had a couple questions. I was wondering how much would the... Would the Beatles be worth? Uh, I got, I got Meet the Beatles, the first album by England's phenomenal pop combo. I got Rat, um, the Fleetwood well, Mac. Motley okay, Crew. hold on, George. George, turn off, turn off your radio or turn down your radio because I think that's what's throwing you. Um, and let's yeah. let Mighty John, let's let Mighty John answer the question about Meet the Beatles because we get a lot of we get a lot of Beatles questions and. Uh, what of the Beatles is collectible, John? Yeah. Well, you mentioned Meet the Beatles, their first album on Capitol. It's going to make a difference whether it's in mono or stereo. If you have the album, look at the cover. On the cover, you'll see a catalog number. T-2047 means it's mono. S-T-2047 means it's stereo. If it's mono, it's up to about $450. If it's stereo, it depends on the color of the label on the record. If it's green, orange, or purple, no more than $20. But if it's black with a rainbow circle, then it's an original up to around $400. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so which one do you have, George? Which one is your Meet the Beatles? Wow, 
it's uh, it's actually the one you just mentioned, <laughs> the last one. With the rainbow? Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, okay. I also have Sunny and Cher in good times. Yeah, uh, you know, Sunny and Cher, she on her own can be collectible, but Sunny and Cher is a duo, not very collectible, no more than $20. All right. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. Six twenty-two on KTSA, San Antonio's news talk station. We're talking with our good friend up in Maine, Mighty John Marshall, the records guy. His website is moneymusic.com. He is a huge record collector and helps people figure out the collectible value. In other words, what uh, collectors are currently looking for and willing to pay for vinyl. And as we always uh, talk about, John, it's not all old records. It's not necessarily all music made by the biggest names in the business. There's certain categories that are the most collectible. Yeah, certainly overall, the most value is going to be found in rock and roll, uh, blues, soul, jazz, and country. And overall, in those categories, Mm. the 1950s, the 1960s, into the 70s, that's where the majority of the big money is going to be found. All right. Um, we're also going to count down as we take your calls. We're going to count down some more of these uh, sizzling summer vinyl records over a hundred dollars in collectible value. We're at number five on your countdown, John, with Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, very collectible. This one, Led Zeppelin three, their third album. It came with a movable wheel or a spinner on the cover, where you could turn it and you could other. It would bring up other pictures on the cover. Current value up to three hundred dollars. Led Zeppelin mm. three. All right, I'll bet, I'll bet that was um, hours and hours of time wasted right there, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just, just, just staring <laughs> at your album up. cover. Kids with, a, <laughs> kids with an online playlist don't get to do that. All right, number four, we just heard the Beatles' Ticket to Ride. This is the yep. capital 45 of that song, right? Right, big hit for them. Now, the value with the picture sleeve up to $350, 300 of that just for the picture sleeve to wow. ride the Beatles. Yep. It's a great song. Good song. First Number three is an early Neil Diamond 45. His very first 45. This is like a rookie card for a baseball collector. That first one tends to be a big one. Neil Diamond, Clown Town, on Columbia Records, currently up to $600. No picture sleeve involved, wow. just the 45, $600. What a career he's had. Oh, unbelievable. Great. Number two, one of my faves, David Bowie. This came out in 1966, long before he had his first big break with uh, Space Oddity. Uh, so uh, Earth to uh, David Bowie, this is worth up to. Can't Help Thinking About Me is the name of it. Up to $3,000. Can't wow. Help Thinking About Me, David Bowie on Warner Brothers Records. And that's a 45. That's a 45. No picture sleeve, just the vinyl itself. Holy Toledo, three grand. All right, and at number one, you, you, you another well, we big name, Paul McCartney. Yeah, Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney. He's been knighted. So the album is Ram, containing his big hit, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. A lot of people have this album, stereo copy, no more than $20. But if you have a copy, it may say stereo on the cover. But look at the label. 
because if it's in mono, there'll be big black bold letters right on the label says mono up to $5,000. And is that because there were fewer of them in mono or far fewer of them? You got to remember back in 1971, mostly all the music top 40 was on AM radio. AM was in mono. And so it's not necessarily a promotional copy, but a lot of them were sent to radio stations because radio was in mono. All right, there you go. Uh, Paul McCartney at number one with the mono version of the LP Ram. And let's talk a little electric light orchestra with Matt on KTSA and Mighty John Marshall. Hi, Matt. Hello. I, I'm already going to deduce that my copy of Sugar Sugar, I cut off the back of the cereal boxes for nothing. Uh, but the, <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. I still have it. No. Anyway, um, I've, I've got Sweet Talk and Woman by the Electric Light Orchestra. It's purple. You can see yep. through it. I know for sure the 45 is that way. I want to say the album, which I also have somewhere, was the same way. Yeah, most of them were. So colored vinyl sometimes can make a big difference with ELO. Actually, the big record for ELO, and we should mention her, she just passed away, is Xanadu with Olivia Um, Mm Newton-John. If you have a copy of Xanadu and Olivia Newton-John's picture is on the vinyl, it's currently up to $6,000. Holy Hmm. mackerel. How about the one that Matt has? Is that that collectible, the purple one that Matt has? Up to about $20. Yeah, right. I have. I have. A, I did have a secondary question. If I have yeah. time here, my older sister was an Elton John fan, and she has a Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. I think it's the ugliest brown vinyl I've ever seen, but she said yeah. it was rare. So I, I don't know. Yes, brown vinyl currently up to five hundred dollars. Well, not bad. I wish it were five thousand, but yeah. anyway, yeah. And, and the other one, I, I guess we're gonna we're gonna we're now about to find out how well Matt likes his sister, right? Because <laughs> he, either well, he well, either well, he tells her this, or he just says, "Let me take that ugly record off your hands." Yeah, the guy on the radio is right. not worth anything. Yeah, Matt, thank you for that. Those are those are great. Uh, those are great questions. You know, we almost never get a jazz question, John. Have you noticed that? And and I. I just want to ask, just kind of for for maybe the the basics. What, what are some what are some artists or particular albums by artists in the jazz genre that would be collectible? Well, certainly Brubeck comes to mind. Uh, you take five, one of his most famous albums on Fantasy Records, can go up to around five hundred dollars. The problem is, for every collector of rock and roll, for every one hundred collectors of rock and roll, there may be one collector yeah. of jazz. So even yeah. though it's very collectible or can be, uh, the market isn't as isn't as deep as it is for rock and roll. What is happening to your uh, hobby, the collectible vinyl hobby, with the renaissance of turntables? Well, yeah, a lot more vinyl on the market. I mean, I think it's easier to find vinyl these days than it is to see, find CDs. Uh, but you want to remember that. A lot of the vinyl uh, that's coming out is reissues of a lot of uh, records that were released in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s. And collectors, they want those original issues. So people always ask me, is that going to drive down the vinyl, uh, the value of previous vinyl? Uh, no, because collectors always want the original issue. I guess one other good thing would be that if you decide to go and get yourself a turntable, you are now going to pull out of that dark corner of the closet or wherever. <laughs> your vinyl records, and you're going to finally start looking at them again, and that's where uh, people are going to make the kinds of discoveries you're describing, right? 
Yeah, and it was funny, that guy earlier mentioned that he had the Archies off the back of the cereal box. That's worth up to about $25. And if he hadn't taken it off the cereal box, it'd be up to $50. And if he hadn't opened the cereal box, it'd be up to $100. And if his mother had never had him as a baby, wait, no. (laughs) Too deep. I'm sure you wouldn't want to eat that cereal today, though. No, okay. Hey, um, for folks that uh, missed it at the beginning, the website is moneymusic.com. There is... Uh, not only some cool info on there, and you have that record of the day feature, which I find addictive, but you can also find out how to order yourself your own price guide or do an online appraisal of record by record uh, right there at moneymusic.com. And get links to our YouTube channel right there on the home page as well. There you go. Are you? Can we actually see you on the YouTube channel? It has my picture up there, yes. Oh, okay. All right. But go there so anyway. If you'd, rather, if you'd rather just imagine what he looks like, don't go there. If you want to know what he... If you want to know... Because you know how it is, right? In radio, it was way better when we sure. didn't when they didn't know what we looked like. You know, it was way better. Yeah. Yes. That's I looked a hell of a lot better when people were imagining it. I know that. I don't know about you, but uh, anyway. Moneymusic.com. John, it's always great to have you. Please come back again soon. Anytime. Thank you, Jack. Six thirty-seven, Jack Riccardi on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA. Among talk show hosts, I like to think of myself as similar to Abraham Lincoln, only with a mullet. No. All right, uh, this half hour we'll get the results on the JR poll. Are you a fan of the mullet? What do you think about mullets? Maybe you have a mullet. I'm not. I, I, like I said at the outset, I. We can still be friends. I don't have to like your hair, you know. Our friendship is deeper than that, right? Goes beyond that. You may not like my hair. <laughs> What's left of it? Um, I had a, a funny uh, email. I don't want to use her name just in case, but it's a it's a cool uh, email. This lady wrote to me and said, um, "I fell in love with my husband 14 years ago. Hopefully, that's when their marriage started." Anyway, um, I, fell, I fell in love with my husband 14 years ago. I'm a city girl. He's a country guy. He had a mullet. I loved him anyway and secretly knew that the mullet was not going to be on his head very long. And it was gone by the time we were engaged. I'll bet mullets are a project for a lot of women. Like a guy with a mullet. Because, yeah, he could be a great guy. He could be the one. And you're like, okay, I'm just gonna. We're gonna work on that. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna take it slow. Of course, you might not have to even work on it. I mean, nature might take care of the mullet. You know, nature's gonna, nature's gonna reach out and strike down that mullet. Maybe, right? Although the thing about mullets is, you can kind of stick with the mullet, even as you're going bald. I've seen guys do that. You know, it's like the mullet just slips back further on their head. Eventually, it looks like their hair is growing up from their back. <laughs> it starts to look like a waterfall of hair. Yeah. I don't know. I, 
it, it's obviously, I mean, there's obviously people that are very attached to it. Think about this. Think about this. Hairstyles, clothing styles, all that comes and goes. Mullets have always been with us, right? They, they never have completely gone away. They're durable. It's like disco, you know? Disco never completely went away. In fact, mullets kind of are the disco of haircuts, I guess, if you think about it. 210-599-5555. So that's our poll question. We're going to see how you uh, vote on that. Mark sent me a funny email, too, because um, we were just talking to our records guy, and he mentioned, uh, John mentioned how collectible uh, Olivia Newton-John and ELO is with Xanadu. Uh, Mark says, when Xanadu came out, I made the mistake of buying the 8-track. Now I'm kicking myself for not buying the vinyl. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of us that bought cassettes, cassingles, remember cassingles? Yeah. Eight tracks, yeah. No, albums are where it's at. Albums are cool again. My daughter's kids, my daughter's age, albums totally. Yeah, they won't look at anything else. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. I tried to tell her one time how we had like, um, you know, you could get albums for like a dollar ninety eight, two ninety eight. Maybe if it was a major artist, three ninety eight. Because these kids are paying like. Twenty, thirty dollars. I think the Harry Styles album. I bought my daughter the Harry Styles album. It was like thirty-two dollars. I'll be calling Mighty John in fifty years <laughs> from hell. <laughs> See what that's worth. Uh, Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. All right. So people are voting on the uh, on the mullet on the JR poll because there's a, a national mullet contest going on. That's what prompted the question. Brown is on the radio. Hi, Brown. Hey, Brown, are you there? I am. Hey, Jack. Uh, okay. Hey, you know what? I was just trying to remind people that the mullet is not just something that Caucasian people had. If you look online, look up the shag, S-H-A-G. That yeah. was the mullet that I wore. Yeah. And I loved it, man. It was breakdance time when I had that what was your uh, What was your inspiration for, for your shag? Why did you get it? Like, was there somebody that had one that you liked? or? No, it was actually the movie Xanadu. It was uh, the the Jackson brother, Jermaine Jackson. Yeah, I watched it too, man. Jermaine Jackson should not be your he should not be your fashion role model, man. Come on. Hey, you know what? He was back then. I wasn't with the glove. I had I loved the, I loved his shag, but his shag had the curl in it. So I didn't do the curl. I didn't have all the grease, but I had. You know try. who had you know who had that going on for a while was Rick James. Remember that? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Remember how he'd whip that yeah. thing around? Yep, you know, and uh, there was another one called uh, Ready for the World. There was about four yes. of them guys, and I think two of them had it. <laughs> and they, you know, oh, you're right, you're right. Oh, <laughs> Sheila, they had a number one hit with Oh, Sheila, and they were and they, they were shag. shagged out, yeah, wall to wall. All right, do you, you don't still have it, do you? You know, I, I do have a costume that I actually, for Christmas, or not Christmas, for, that would be horrible for Christmas, but for Halloween... I do actually still have the the, the shag wig. Okay, well, that's if it's a wig, that's all right. We can still we can still be friends. All right, Brown. Thank you, sir. Uh, Alan is on KTSa Jack Riccardi show. Hi, Alan. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Uh, a bald guy with a mullet is called a skullet. Really? Are you just making that up, or is that a thing I never heard of before? <laughs> I'm not really actually making that up. I don't think. Wow, I never heard that. A skullet. That doesn't really make it sound better. 
It's more descriptive. It. It's more descriptive. I'll give you that. But real quick you, you, story, what, I was driving. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was driving. This was back in the day when Lyle and Vaughn were on the radio in the morning. Right. Yeah. And I, and they were digging on people with mullets. And I was taking this kid that worked with me to work because his car was broke down. And he had to ride with me for about 30 minutes. And Lyle and Han were digging on mullet. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, what's a mullet? And I looked over at him <laughs> and I go, your hairdo. <laughs> <laughs> so how sad is it when you have a mullet and you don't know you have a mullet? Yeah. That's really, that is pathetic. But I had never heard of Skullet before. That is very, thank you for sharing that with us, Alan. Now we know what it's called. Um, So a mullet, when you start going bald, becomes a Skullet. Um, By the way, Lyle and Han should not have been making fun of mullets because, correct me if I'm wrong, Don, but that's probably about a third of the KISS audience at that time. I mean, KISS and KZAP were your mullet headquarters, you know, clearly. I mean, if you were wearing a mullet back in the day, you were either listening to Kiss or KZAP. So, know, know the room. Got to know the room. This is crazy. You've heard the term mansplaining, right? We've talked about that. You know what that is, right? There's a controversy in Scotland because a man has been appointed, and I cannot believe this is an actual government title a man in scotland in one of the states or regions of scotland has been named period dignity officer jason grant is responsible for promoting access to sanitary products and encouraging discussion about menstruation and menopause under a new law in scotland entitled the period products act Grant told the London Daily Mail he's proud of the job, making people aware of the availability of period products, but he's come under fire for the absurdity of appointing a man to that job. Even even Martina Navratilova has uh, reacted. On Twitter she wrote, Have we ever tried to explain to men how to shave or take care of their prostate or whatever? She's upset that a man is in charge of the government's menstrual programs. First of all, the job sounds like a joke. You know, like you want, maybe you're like, you know, you have a relative in the government or in politics, like, hey, get me something. Oh, we got something for you here. Oh, good, which which ministry is it? Well, it's the, um, <laughs> I can't believe that's a job. But yeah, then I would I would think that appointing a man to it is is really not a good idea. I understand that we're talking about, uh, you know, chest feeding and men can get pregnant and all that. But see, it always turns out that women are only kind of going along with that. When you do something like this, we, we find out very quickly women still think there's a difference. This whole men can get pregnant, everybody's just pretending, okay? Uh, so a lot of uh, outrage for the first of its kind uh, male appointee as period dignity officer. I um, also saw this story. This is also from the UK. Um, The um, Air Chief Marshal of the Royal Air Force has accepted the resignation 
of one of his top depth. So he would be like the equivalent of the Air Force chief of staff in this country. He's accepted the resignation of his head of recruitment, who has uh, complained that they cannot make their targets under the new diversity requirements of the Royal Air Force. The RAF cannot reach its recruiting goals um, because they're getting too many white male applicants and not enough of every other kind of applicant. And so he's quitting. I I wonder if it's, I, I hate to say this is a terrible thing to say, I, I wonder if it's going to take an actual war where we're getting our butts kicked to realize that the military, whether it's this country or the UK, the military is for fighting wars. You need people who can and will do that. It does not matter how they distribute in the population or what the demographics. People have to be willing and able to be warriors. And are we going to have to get our butts kicked by some group of people that don't give a flip about diversity? You know, they all look the same, and they're they're beating us. They're they're humiliating Western civilization. And then we're going to be like, oh wait a minute, we're going to have to suspend the diversity mandate. I hope that doesn't that isn't what's required, but it, it does make you wonder, right? I mean, just imagine. You know, Ike is getting ready to land at Normandy. Oh wait, we. We don't have the proper diversity ratios, but but general, the weather is this is the optimum time and the tides. We have to go now. No, no, we have not reached our diversity goals. Can't do it. Can't go. So anyway, I hope I'm wrong about that. Probably I am. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Sorry about the disruption, folks. But I always do the last dance of the season. But this year, somebody told me not to. So I'm going to do my kind of dancing with a great partner, who's not only a terrific dancer, but somebody who's taught me that there are people willing to stand up for other people, no matter what it costs them. Somebody who's taught me about the kind of person I want to be. <laughs> 35 years ago for Dirty Dancing. This was the big hit. This was the huge emblematic song of a very successful soundtrack. Bill Medley from the Righteous Brothers and Jennifer Warren. I've had the time of my life. I was playing this song like every 45 minutes on music radio. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if I've ever admitted this before. So I was a disc jockey in Boston on a station that played all these songs. We played we played Hungry Eyes, and I've had the time of my life, and she's like the wind. And um, the the I don't even know if we had the term pop culture, but the pop culture for for a little while there in the late summer of '87, Dirty Dancing was everything. It was. Everyone was talking about it. It was the number one movie. It was, you know, just everything. And I'm playing the music, and we're talking about it on radio. I never went to see it. I just had no interest in it. 
and I was faking my way. People would ask me about scenes and what did you think and Jennifer Grey, and I had to just fake my way through it. I saw it eventually, but like years later, and it was not my cup of tea. But I remember at the time, I thought, man, I, if, they better never find out. Because you had to be, you had to like, you had to live it. You know, you pl- we were playing the songs, we're talking about the movie, people are calling in, I love this song, I love it when they do it in the movie. Da-da. I'm like, yeah, that was great, I'll play it for you. Ne- never saw it. So, I think I've passed the statute of limitations, I don't think they can get me for that now. Um, on the JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, are you a fan of the mullet? 92% said no. 8% said yes. And um, that's a landslide. That's like a Harriet Hageman over Liz Cheney landslide right there. We'll have a new JR poll tomorrow. When we get started at 4, you can find it anytime on the Jack Riccardi page at KTSA.com. And you can find our show anytime on demand at KTSA.com uh, as well. We'll leave you w- one more time with one of the Dirty Dancing hits from uh, back in the day. This weekend marks 35 years for the release of that movie and the accompanying soundtrack. And this is Eric Carmen out of Cleveland, the former lead singer of the Raspberries with Hungry Eyes on KTSA. KTSA.